Hi, my name is Nina Bosky, and I'm the host of a special investigation series of Maryland Behind the Icon during the 60th anniversary of the star's death, where we'll look into the mystery and break down for you, the audience, of what the facts are versus the lies around the star that have been plaguing her for over six decades. We have some of the top Maryland experts with me on the panel. Gary Vitaco Robles, icon, lifetimes in films of Marilyn Monroe, and April Via Via, now Chambers, Marilyn Monroe, A Day in the Life, and Donald McGovern, Murder Orthodoxies, a non-conspiracy view of Marilyn Monroe's death. Each week, we will break down for you what is fact, what is probable theory, and what is outlandish rumor. Hi there, Behind the Icon fans. Do we have a special episode for you this week? We are answering your questions. We've been getting them for the last few months since we started this special investigation series, so we thought we would answer a few of them. Some of the answers will be probable theory, as the facts just aren't known, but the experts will give you their opinion based on the facts around Marilyn and the people surrounding her during the last days of her life. With that said, let's get started. I have both Gary Vitaco Robles and Donald McGovern, who are the experts on the panel with me this week. Hi, guys. Hey, hey Nina. All right. So we're going to have some fun here this week as we have our first question. And it is from a listener that said, besides the proof of Ralph Roberts, and I think we should address this, do you have any proof that Marilyn was at Bing Cosby's house in March of 1962? So I'll start with you, Donald. Well, Marilyn says she was. Would you like to elaborate? (laughs) Well, she told Ralph Roberts she was there and she called Roberts from the bedroom where she was in the bedroom with Kennedy. Uh, In his memoir, Mimosa, Roberts talks about a telephone conversation he had with Marilyn about going to meet Kennedy at, which originally supposed to be Sinatra's house, but they changed it to Bing Crosby's house. So she decided to go and meet the president at the Bing Crosby estate, and they had a conversation about it. And isn't there an excerpt that you have that what she actually said? Well, I have Ralph Roberts' memoir. Yeah, what is some of the text from that? She referred to John Kennedy as the gentleman caller, and she said to Ralph Roberts, the gentleman caller still calls from time to time. He'll be in California this week, wants me to go to Palm Springs for the weekend. The whole shebang is staying at Frank's house. He's turned it all over to them. I'm not sure I want to go. I've gotten to know the gentleman caller's sister quite well, which would have been Pat Kennedy. Uh, She's a remarkable girl. I think she's fantastic. We have a lot of laughs together. Then in another conversation, she's told Roberts, hey, I think I'm going to go. A change was made, and it's to be at Bing Crosby's house, something about security or something. I'm awfully nervous. All sorts of elaborate preparations have been made. All sorts of elaborate preparations have been made, excuse me. I'm wearing the black wig, carrying an attache case. I have an identification card with a picture of me wearing the wig. That's what my name is, Tony Roberts. You're sure that nobody will recognize me in the black wig. But as far as actual photographs or something like that of Marilyn at Bing Crosby's estate, I don't think those even exist. She did tell Sidney Skolsky and Susan Strasberg that she was with the president. 
So those are two reliable sources because obviously Susan Strasberg, as well as Sidney Skolsky, were two people that were close to Marilyn. Ralph Roberts was also a person that was close to Marilyn. Although we don't have actual proof in terms of pictures, those witnesses are highly credible. So Gary, what proof besides Ralph Roberts do we have that Marilyn was actually at Bing Crosby's house in March of 1962? Well, I'd have to venture to say that although those are credible sources, there is no definitive proof we can look at what the media reported on the president's whereabouts in March of 1962 in Palm Springs. And we could also look to what Anthony Summers provided in his book, Goddess. He claims to have interviewed Philip Watson, a Los Angeles County assessor, who said that the president and Monroe appeared together in public at a cottage on the Crosby estate. And Summers also mentions Peter Summers, Kennedy political strategist, who also was a witness to that. But given Summers' misinformation and the way he misconstrues information, I've never heard the audio tapes of those interviews. It's just what he quotes in his book. So I don't know how authentic they are. But what I can tell you is what the newspaper articles reported about Kennedy. So on Friday, March 23rd, he took an Air Force jet from Andrews Air Force Base in Washington. He left at 8.49 a.m. for Almeida Naval Air Station on San Francisco Bay. He then drove from Almeida, Oakland to Berkeley. He visited the Lawrence Radiation Laboratory. He spoke at the University of California Stadium at 3 p.m. Then he traveled to Vandenberg Air Force Base near Lompoc in Central California, where he watched the firing of a missile. Then on Friday, the Desert Sun announced that the uh, president was arriving. So he arrived in the evening on Friday at 7.46, and there's lots of details about the motorcade, and then going to Silver Spur Ranch, and then the media reports on Saturday the 24th at 11 o'clock in the morning, he met with Dwight D. Eisenhower at the Eldorado Country Club. And then the press reported that Kennedy later, I'm gonna quote this, went swimming at Crosby's estate with his sister and brother-in-law. In the evening, the president hosted an intimate dinner for about 25, including the Lawfords and personal staff members Kenneth O'Donnell and Dave Peters. There seems to be a window after the meeting with former President Eisenhower and this evening on Saturday night. And then we know on Sunday, the president attended mass at the Catholic Church of the Sacred Heart in Palm Springs. And then he departed from Palm Springs at the airport 11.31 p.m. That's what the press reports on his whereabouts. So that narrows the window to when he could have had contact with Monroe. Well, that's pretty detailed as we are always very much our mission is to give you the facts versus theories. And of course, if there's outlandish rumors. So there's been rumors, multiple rumors over the years, not just on that March weekend, but multiple times. So this is what we can narrow down in terms of that window. Let's move to the second question, okay? So this has to do with verifying the amount of medication because this listener says that there's 25 Nebutal and 10 left of the chloral hydrate. According to what he has heard about Marilyn, she would take 10 chloral hydrate a night and that I think she took the chloral hydrate first and lost count of how many she took. 
Gary, why don't you go ahead and answer the question of what we do know to be true? So Nina, this is what we know. We know that when the police interviewed Engelberg, he reported that he had prescribed Nembatol and chloral hydrate to Monroe in late July and that he had refilled both prescriptions on August 3rd, just a day before her overdose. So he believed that there would have been a refill of 50 pills, but according to the original police report, that prescription originally was 25 Nembatol, so the refill would have been for another 25 within about a week. So that would have given Marilyn access to about 50 pills. And, and is that the Nebutol Rob- that you're talking about or the chloral hydrate? Both the Nebutol and the chloral hydrate. Okay. There was also the question of if another doctor was prescribing it. And a doctor by the name of Lou Siegel, his name came up. Robert Littman of the suicide prevention team said that Monroe might have also received Nebutol from Dr. Siegel. So what we can share with you in the summary report of the Los Angeles District Attorney's investigation in 1982, there was an inventory of bottles that contained the empty Nembatol bottle dated August 3rd, and there was another one labeled chloral hydrate dated 725. So the investigators at the time attempted to reconstruct the number of Nembatol capsules that Marilyn would have taken based upon her blood and liver levels. And they were unable to really come up with an exact number of pills, but using some rather crude standards, they estimated that it would have been in excess of 25, possibly 40 or more. When we consulted with Dr. Cyril Weck, he concluded maybe about 17 chloral hydrate and about 47 Nembatol. So the L.A. district attorney did track down a Dr. Lou Siegel, who was on record being a 20th Century Fox studio physician who had treated Monroe. Now, originally, he told Dr. Robert Littman in 1962 that he may have prescribed the Nembatol. When he was interviewed by the LADA 20 years later in 1982, he vehemently denied it. So there was some question if she was doctor shopping for that medication. The person who asked this question, this is where we need to redirect their attention because there's a lot of information here that gets distracted when we look at some of these other issues. And the first issue, I think, is to say that Dr. Greenson believed that Engelberg was no longer prescribing barbiturates to Marilyn in the last three weeks of her life. And we know even by Engelberg himself, that indeed he was. So I think the question becomes, was Hyman Engelberg colluding with Monroe to give her access to these barbiturates and keeping this secretive purposefully from Dr. Greenson, who likely wouldn't have approved? So on Marilyn's nightstand, there was discovered the empty bottle of Nembatol, but they also discovered an empty bottle which bore the label nodular which was prescribed, I believe, in November of 1961. So that's a very old prescription, empty on her nightstand, in addition to the empty bottle of Nembatol, which was recently filled. Right there, to me, is a red flag. Was Monroe hoarding these medications and trying to keep them from Dr. Greenson? So Greenson came to her house and claimed that he did not see the Nembatol, You know, we talked before about the Nimbatol possibly being in another bedroom. But if there was a bottle marked nodular, 
which really contained the hoard of Nembatol, would he have noticed that? And when Monroe, in her last phone conversation to Greenson, asked, did you take my Nembatol? And he thought she was confused and didn't really press and investigate what she meant. I wonder if there was some Nembatol hoarded. And since she filled the prescription within just about a week of each other, it's hard to imagine that she would have ingested a 30-day supply of medicine in 10 days and then have another 30-day supply of medicine. Right there is a red flag in this case. Okay. And as we know, guys, and this is really important, is this issue here is that she was prescribed hundreds and hundreds of different medications. And when we had Dr. Reef Kareem, who's a psychiatrist, he basically said that there's no way that anybody should be prescribed all these medications. So back in 1962, that might've been the standard. Today, it's not so much. Don, any last comments before we move on to the next question? No, just to point out that she was given many, 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 many pills over the last uh, 57 days of her life, 796, according to my tabulation, which included 32 Trivil, which was not in a prescription bottle. It was in an unmarked bottle. The only thing on it was letters MSD, which probably stood for Merrick Sharp and Dome, manufacturer of Trivil. Just looking at what was prescribed within the last 30 days, on July 10th, Dr. Engelberg gave Monroe 50 units of Valmid, which is a sedative, and 25 units of Secanol and 25 units of Tuanol. Both of those are barbiturates. And he also prescribed 100 units of Librium. So she had a large supply of medications, two barbiturates, from July 10th until the end of July when Engelberg then gave her the Nembatol and the chloral hydrate, and then just about a week goes by and he refills those two last prescriptions. So there is a tremendous amount of meds and a lot of opportunity to hoard medications. Just one quick one with uh, Joe DiMaggio on this. Joe DiMaggio must not have known the doctor's involvement at that point because Dr. Greenson was invited to the funeral, but Hollywood wasn't. But Dr. Engelberg was not. Any statement on that? We don't really know what DiMaggio thought. I don't know that it really has any impact on the case. We also know from Henry Efren that the local Los Angeles community had strong opinions about Engelberg's prescriptions of, to Monroe and her death, and that shortly after her death, he was roughed up at the Brentwood Country Club locker room by some you know, locals who had strong opinions about his prescribing practices. All right. Well, there you have it. We're going to continue the conversation in next week's episode where we're going to talk about would it be beneficial to exhume the body? Would it be beneficial to understand some of the specifics of the autopsy report in regards to the ambulance theory? All this and more as we still investigate what is a fact, what is a probable theory, and what is an outlandish rumor. My guests have been Gary Vitaka Robles and Donald McGovern, both experts in the field of Maryland, giving you the facts, giving you their theories. And of course, you already know what is an outlandish rumor. Until next time, I'm Nina Boski for Behind the Icon. The truth will be known.